0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and I hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since nineteen thirty-five. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military uh, and unmanned systems. Sam, uh, welcome back. Hope you guys had a great holiday uh, weekend and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Vargo. Hope you and yours had a good weekend as well. Uh, indeed, it was uh, it was
0: uh, a welcome uh, a welcome break. Um, before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff. Done right, uh, Sam. Uh, you know we were going to talk about the great uh, unmanned uh, report uh, that you guys put together on Russia's uh, unmanned capabilities and what it's been using in in Ukraine. And and news has intervened uh, once uh, again. Uh, news reports, uh, at least Russians uh, saying that eight uh, unmanned uh, uh, vehicles um, made it over uh, Moscow. They accuse Ukraine. Uh, they say all eight were shot down, but that three ended up hitting Moscow apartment, uh, apartment blocks. Um, Now we understand that there are actually significantly more than eight. uh, And actually, some of them may have done damage. The Ukrainian answer is, we don't discuss this stuff. uh, But, you know, we're happy to watch, uh, I think was was the line from from the Ukraine Air Force spokesman. Um, What happened? And what does this tell us at a time when it looks like we have now You know, the the Russians struck Kiev uh, in a daylight attack uh, over the weekend, and now it looks like Ukraine may have responded in kind in
1: daylight over Moscow. It does look like it's a Ukrainian response to that massive Russian drone strike. Uh, Russia launched one of the biggest strikes against Ukraine using its Shah heads, something like over 50, with most of them shut down by the Ukrainian air defenses. And so... Over the last year and a half, this has been a repeat pattern that Ukraine is attacked and uh, Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian civilian society is attacked and affected. But up until a certain point, Ukraine had no recourse in putting the same type of pressure on uh, the Russian society and the Russian civilians as well as a response. And then towards the end of last year, Ukraine starts fielding longer range drones and becomes more effective in striking Russian territory proper. Uh, this was a um, a very powerful attack, as far as it affected many of Russia's regions. Um, it affected a lot of the um, Moscow suburbs. It affected downtown as well. There are plenty of eyewitness videos and accounts. People are posting panicking videos of drones literally flying overhead on the way to target. There are multiple types of drones that were probably involved. It is likely that some were. Ukrainian-made UJ-22 drone, which has a range of up to 800 kilometers. Some were probably smaller and lighter drones, either launched from Ukraine proper or from Russian territory proper. Uh, some, Russian teleg- um, some Russian telegram channels, and there's lots of commentary there, as you can imagine, are now saying that some of the drone strikes were made by small UAVs, possibly launched within uh, Russian territory. So this may have involved some uh, longer range drones, medium range drones, it may have involved drones built by enthusiasts and uh, volunteers, and it may also involve the classical quadcopters uh, that are probably launched from within um, the Moscow region. So this raises a lot of questions about who did this, uh, why it was done in that specific fashion, And it raises a lot of questions about Russian air defense and electronic warfare defenses. Even if most of these drones were neutralized, the fact that they were able to penetrate into the very heart of Moscow, um, the fact that they were able to strike all over the city, all over the capital city demonstrates that, of course, a blanket air defense or blanket electronic warfare coverage is probably not possible. So there are gaps, there are situations where, Moscow and the Kremlin have to prioritize what to defend. Uh, It is possible that uh, Moscow pulled a lot of the air defenses and electronic warfare defenses from other um, regions, possibly even from Ukraine, to defend Moscow proper, which allowed a lot of these drones to uh, fly over Russian territory on the way to Moscow.
0: Um, it's, uh, uh, It's utterly... Uh, fascinating how actually a relatively small uh, attack uh, against uh, an enemy's uh, pain point uh, could trigger defenses, right? But the Japanese expended a lot of effort after uh, the 1942 Doolittle raid, uh, you know, moving air, and air defenses uh, to guard uh, Tokyo and, and other targets. Uh, is this going to, you know, a lot of Russians kind of have gone along with the war because it hasn't touched them at all. Right, Uh, ultimately, this is the sort of thing that could fan alarm. Uh, Two drones were intercepted over uh, the Kremlin. Um, Ultimately, does this cause the Russians to redirect resources, limited resources, and use them differently?
1: Well, they've been trying to redirect the resources over the past uh, half a year. Um, And again, this is not the first attack into Russia proper. There've been strikes, uh, very pinpointed strikes, on russian energy infrastructure and on some of the military bases by uh, what appeared to be military grade drones it also wasn't clear whether they were launched from ukraine proper or from russia proper what this does indicate to many and what a lot of the russian telegram channels are panicking over is the fact that there's no control over what exactly is launched in uh, in russia meaning what kind of drones are launched in russia and where they're launched from And so there's no sort of eyes and ears in that situation. And therefore, some of the attacks may be carried out by small drones, not necessarily by the Ukrainian military, but uh, other actors, um, anti-Russian groups, anti-Kremlin groups, um, anti-government groups. And uh, some of these drones, of course, um, uh, may be launched from from other regions. In other words, uh, there's a lot of concern over what happens in the country when um, these attacks can uh, take place repeatedly and are likely to take place repeatedly. In other words, the longer Moscow continues to attack Kiev and Ukraine, the more Ukrainians are going to strike back. And this, in fact, is bringing the war exactly on the doorsteps of regular Russians, specifically on Moscow. Moscow is supposed to be the most secure, the wealthiest part of the country where life is supposed to go on as as normal as if the war is very very far away this attack has demonstrated that the war is not far away the war is actually right next door right and so the question remains what does that do to the people what does that do to society is that actually going to wake up certain people to the realities um is the ministry of defense going to be pressured to do something differently will there be a reallocation of resources Uh, quite possibly what will the government say about this and, uh, of course, a lot of the uh, Russian volunteers who have been following this war on Telegram are now saying, we told you so. And therefore, all of the uh, elites, all of uh, everybody who is involved in the governance and, and the government of Russia must, must essentially wake up to this new drone reality. Uh,
0: it's uh, it's uh, fascinating. Uh, and... Uh, Right last week, uh, we discussed uh, the Russian partisan uh, attack, uh, armed, uh, and it looks like Ukraine supported them, uh, went uh, into Russian territory and for a couple of days raised uh, havoc near Belgorod Uh, and a couple of uh, other points. uh, There was a little bit of concern whether the United States would be critical of it, but the State Department response was what we give to the Ukrainians is for the Ukrainians uh, to use as they see fit because the Russians accused uh, these partisans of of being armed by Ukraine and using American weapons. Wagner mercenary and pedal group owner, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, has claimed that it's time for Russia to make make North Korea like sacrifices to win this war. Uh, Otherwise Russia is in peril and it would be subject uh, to another revolution, what's, what's your sense on, on comments like this? Uh, because knowledge of Russian history suggests that the 1917 revolution was because uh, Russia was so poorly prosecuting the war, Russians were dying in large numbers. They're not dying in as large numbers now, but they're dying in larger numbers than at any point uh, in Soviet history, uh, you could argue. What's what's your sense on that line of reasoning and how all of these different elements kind of play into that
1: Russian paranoia? Well, there appears to be an aversion still in the government and in society um, about declaring a mass mobilization of the entire society for this war. That there's still a preference for a limited type operation. Uh, there's still a preference for calling this um, um, SVO instead of an actual war, or um, or a limited – mil-
0: uh, Special military operation. Exactly,
1: or a very kind of limited military action by definition. Uh, and again, a, a lot of people were calling for the mobilization of the Russian economy, industry, military, society for this war, but that has not happened. Uh, whether it's likely to happen is under discussion, it's under debate. It isn't likely that the Russian president would announce this, uh, given the vulnerabilities in the Russian society and the economy as a result of sanctions um, and all of the divisions and fissures that have appeared in society as a result of this um, invasion in the first place. So obviously, Prigozhin and other Telegram bloggers are going to sound off on their channels, and they may indeed be influential in some corners of society. It's not clear whether their um, sentiment is reaching the rest of the country and whether the government is going to actually respond to that and try to mobilize uh, Russia writ large, which would be an enormous undertaking and may, in fact, have extremely negative consequences for the country in the long term. Um, you uh,
0: and your colleague, uh, Jeff Edmonds, uh, finished uh a comprehensive report of Russia's use of uncrewed systems in Ukraine. Walk us uh, through uh, the top conclusions you guys have, because I don't think anybody
1: on the planet has followed this more closely than you have. Thanks so much for helping us um, speak about our report. We essentially tried to analyze uh, all of the UAVs and all of the concepts and tactics that the Russian military is utilizing in Ukraine today. So we described military-grade UAVs. We also devoted a lot of attention to the commercial-type drones and the new tactics and and procedures that have emerged as a result of mass-scale use of these commercial UAVs. Obviously, the biggest conclusions are that the battle space is becoming very transparent, that given a a multitude of sensors from military-grade UAVs to quadcopters to mobile communications, it is no longer possible to hide from the adversary. It's, no it's no longer possible to hide movements um, and maneuvers and um, reallocation of resources. That means uh, an enormous investment must be made in counter UAV technologies. And also, there's a lot of recognition that this war really features a new reality where the commercial tech like Chinese made quadcopters and now, of course, FPV drones are becoming ubiquitous and commonplace practically everywhere on both sides. And so uh, for Russia, the goal is to try and incorporate this new technology into existing concepts and tactics, which still lean heavily uh, towards uh, placing a preference on military drones. Uh, At the tactical level, there's a lot of pressure, actually, from the soldiers and the volunteers to change some of these tactics to really kind of try and see, uh, or actually force the MOD to recognize the new reality. Uh, And that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Another conclusion we made is that the Russian defense industry has been very slow in recognizing the significance of these tactical commercial drones and uh, essentially turning around and investing in a significant effort to manufacture these um, replaceable throwaway attritable drones is going to be very hard for the defense industry, which really, prefers uh, military grade uh, and more expensive systems. But again, there's a lot of recognition happening at different levels of the Russian military and whether or not all of these ideas are gonna come together in a coherent policy remains to be seen. And of course, uh, when we uh, we started writing the report, um, it was, I think it was the fall of 2022, by the time we finished, there are new realities on the ground, like the emphasis uh, and investment in FBV drones uh, by all sides, especially the Russians as well.
0: Uh, and uh, one uh, last quick question. We've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, Rocktar, uh, the Turkish Bayraktar system was synonymous uh, with Ukraine's uh, capabilities and seen as instrumental to its success in the early part of the war. Not much seen uh, about Bayraktar. Obviously, Erdogan won re-election uh, and has played both sides of this conflict, uh, in a sense. Um, what does this tell us, right? Why, why is that? significant that the Tower is not as prominent anymore?
1: Well, there are different reasons for it. Uh, obviously, the number one reason is the Tower was very successful when Russian air defenses, electronic warfare um, defenses were not really well put together. Um, in the disarray of the opening days and weeks of the Russian invasion, uh, Russian military made a lot of uh, mistakes. And one of those mistakes was not having enough uh, cover against uh, Ukraine, um, U- Ukrainian uh, systems like the Barakhtars. In fact, that threat was probably underestimated or not considered. It's not exactly clear. And so Barakhtar was very successful in striking Russian military columns and filming that. And of course, Barakhtar emerged as a very powerful information war weapon as well. Once the Russian military got its act together more or less with air defenses and especially electronic warfare defenses, it became clear for Ukrainians to operate different types of drones. In fact, there's a lot of recognition, public recognition from the Ukrainians, that. On certain parts of the front, Russian EW systems are very powerful. Um, and that uh, organization may have affected how Bayraktar operates as well, because by itself, Bayraktar does not fly very fast. It does not fly very high. So it could potentially be a significant target for uh, well-organized air defenses. And we've seen that not just in Ukraine, but in other conflicts where Bayraktars were used. So. Obviously, Barak are still flying. They may be flying different types of missions. They may be flying, for example, support missions where their powerful cameras and sensors are guiding other drones and Ukrainian assets to target. They may also be conducting some limited combat operations where there are significant Russian air defense and electronic warfare gaps. But again, it is, it is rather telling that uh, a certain type of drone is no longer as prevalent as it was before, either because of uh, Russian advances or by Ukraine's choice. This war is a constant evolution of threats and technologies. As one side gets better at something, the other side tries to come up with successful countermeasures. And sometimes that's actually effective, sometimes it's not. Uh, The Bayraktar was a very successful uh, symbol of Ukrainian military prowess and technological advancement. But these type of drones are in fact vulnerable to well-established air defenses. We've seen it again world over. And so um, there's a move of sorts right now, an evolution from uh, expensive standalone platforms towards mass use of UAVs and drones, which are much cheaper and easier to put together. A case in point, this attack this morning on on Moscow by multiple types of drones, which include military grade, as well as possibly civilian types of technologies on a large scale, and uh, with each drone costing uh, a mere fraction of what Barakhtar is. Again, uh, there's an, e- this is an evolution, and we are probably going to see some um, version of Baraktar still, uh, quite possibly a Ukrainian version, uh, but this is basically a continued battle of sword versus shield, offense versus defense, technologies for offensive and defensive operations, and a constant evolution of these technologies as this war continues.
0: Sam, thanks so very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much, Varl.
0: And a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors, our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace Sponsors. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a terrific holiday weekend and welcome back from a uh, what, by all accounts, was a terrific trip to Japan and Korea.
2: It was. Uh, Vago. And the most poignant thing was to spend the Saturday before Memorial Day up on the DMZ, which was a very uh, profound reminder of the sacrifices that
0: Americans have made, um, and a, a funny way to honor the holiday. Uh, former uh, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld uh, would regularly uh, point out how his closest friend was killed in the Korean War, and that he would look over and all you would see was darkness. Whereas you know the the South Korean side was just ablaze with life, and you know the other side of the border was was just dark. And what what did that tell you? Um, anyway, um, so we now have a uh, deal. Uh, we have averted a debt default, which is uh, which is good. Um, everything has been capped, with the expe- exception of defense, and it's going to increase to the administration's FY twenty four number, uh, which I think is about a one percent increase but it's not going to uh, include uh, congressional ads, certainly at this point, or inflation adjustments, right? Where did we end up? Because the information is kind of like dripping and drabbing out in in terms of like where we actually ended up with this and what it means.
2: Correct. We basically ended up with defense. This is the 050 defense budget function at the administration request level. Um, You'll see people say that that's a 3% increase, a 3.2% increase over fiscal year 23, um but you really have to factor in the ukraine supplementals um and that's kind of a to be determined both for fiscal 23 and 24. um i would assume there is going to be uh, another supplemental or supplementals um and that'll really gauge what the final comp comparison will be uh, but you know i i kind of dismiss the three percent gain headline because that excludes Ukraine supplementals and they've most well, certainly been a factor for defense. And then the interesting thing was in the agreement, um, you know, it's the FY25 number that was actually cut a bit from what the administration plan was. Not not by a great deal. It may have been a you know, I think it was 907 in the administration plan and it may be 895 or something in the in the budget document. And then after that, you know, this deal is very different than the Budget Control Act because there are some guidance numbers in the document uh, for uh, for discretionary spending, but there's no enforcement mechanism. So I think it's really going to depend on what happens in the 2024 election and what the appetite is in Congress and whatever administration is elected to make further cuts or frankly, uh, you know, continue to fund defense and maybe actually look at things like mandatory spending or taxes, which were left completely Mm -hmm. off the table in this this latest exercise. So, I mean, I I think it's a sentiment positive for defense. Um, Markets hate uncertainty. And at least now you could argue, well, you've got some certainty about what FY24 and 25 are going to look like. The FY25 budget process is underway in the department. They've got time to, to manage this and comport it to, to that new number. Um, but, you know, is it great for defense? No. Uh, to your point, there are inflationary pressures that the building is grappling with. There's still this question of, um, you know, the usual underlying cost growth that you can see in programs that can prop up, can pop up. Uh, if defense isn't keeping pace with broader inflationary pressures, you know, the department has already been under pressure for recruitment and retention issues. And, you know, it's a sector that competes with the rest of the economy. So if you're kind of hobbling it that way, um, that may not be necessarily good. And I would also say, you know, I found it a very weird, curious way to characterize the split between spending in the, in the budget document, the bill text that was put out, um, it was referred to as security and non-security. How you consider the Department of Homeland Security, State Department, a lot of the other elements um, that are not within the Department of Defense, non-security is just beyond me. So I think it's a false economy. I've talked about this before. Um, you know, there are a lot of different parts of government that contribute to national security. It most certainly is not just the Department of Defense. Uh,
0: you, you can't uh, separate uh, it as easily one uh, from uh, the other. The Budget Control Act, for all the criticism that it got, saved more than $2 trillion by, by most accounts. And then it also reducted, reduced the rate of our spending for a protracted period at a time at a time when the economy was, was also red uh, hot. Uh, the economy obviously is, is, is hot now. And in some respects, folks would consider it to be a little bit overheated. You're pretty good at math. What did this save, right, for, for coming as perilously close to a, a, a default What what did we write? I mean, what's the net aggregate saving? And was this degree of juice worth the risk of the squeeze? Not Uh, to paraphrase a John Kirbyism there.
2: Yeah, uh, look, (laughs) Bill Hoagland, uh, you know, former professional Senate staffer, uh, bipartisan policy center, estimated that the bill basically will save about $140 billion dollars over fiscal year 24, 25, that's a combined number. Um, If you look at total federal budget that had been proposed by, uh, for the request for FY24 and the plan for FY25, that's about 1% of total government spending. So it's de minimis. Um, It's really, and and to the point, it just has not gotten to any of the real drivers of federal deficits, which are, mandatory spending and probably a tax base that's not not large enough to pay for the spending that's out there. So uh, I think it it is different than the Budget Control Act. I don't think you're going to see the hit to defense spending, certainly, that the Budget Control Act imparted. There's only two years where the budget potentially could be sequestered. So there are messaging points that both sides can point to when you look at the out-year numbers. But doesn't mean the problem's gone away. It just means that uh, the the problem being, you know, this debate about uh, how much can the U.S. afford to spend, what should it be spending it on, what's the proper level of of debt that the U.S. can can manage and sustain. Um, those issues are are only going to get worse, you know, not just for the United States, but for a whole bunch of countries uh, around the world. And um, this this deal to me was. Kind of a pretty simple, you know, piece of wallpaper that covered up a little patch of the wall, but it it didn't it didn't really get to what the substantive issues were. So uh, on one level, I see it as a sentiment positive for defense. Um, I do think, you know, to state the obvious, we are in a very different geopolitical environment today than we were in two thousand eleven when the budget control act was put together, um, and, and so I just think. You know, there there are many more chapters are going to be written in this book. It is not going to be any easier than what we saw this go around. I think a lot more needs to be done really to kind of, uh, you know, manage this from public expectations, because I think looking at a lot of the opinion polls, the public was kind of disengaged from this. I mean, you know, yeah, majority of people want to see federal spending cut, but I kept going back to a poll that showed, you know, when you ask people what they thought of different levels of federal spending. Um, most thought, you know, spending should be increased on healthcare, on education, on, on, on border security. So there's just this disconnect that um, I can understand why this deal was, was done. Um, you wanted to avoid the default by, by you know, that, that, that was good that there was strong partisan agreement on that, but have we gotten to the bottom of this? By, by no means is this a, a bill that really got to the, the fundamental concerns and drivers um, they're gonna shape fiscal policy in the 2020s and beyond.
0: Uh, you know obviously it was seen uh, by some as um, some political posturing. You could argue in, in part uh, on both sides right I mean the president was supposed to, was trying to burnish his bipartisan uh, credentials. He did keep a remarkable amount of his agenda from what was originally uh, planned. Uh, but again, I mean it'll, it'll be interesting if it passes uh right i mean it ain't over until until it's over um let me ask you about um financial performance uh concerns um you know, the, the industry is doing great. It's important to have a very healthy defense industrial base if you want it to deliver for you at the end of the day. Uh, but you know the, the notion of excessively high margins or price gouging is always something uh, that comes up in times of plenty. And indeed, uh, it was kind of a turning and inflection point in the 1980s uh, when we saw reports about $1,200 hammers and $600 toilet seats. And we had 60 minutes a uh, week before last Um, you know, suggest that that's exactly what's happening with no less than the former director of Pentagon procurement policy, Shea Assad, former senior Raytheon executive, sort of calling out all the times when, you know, parts that were a couple of hundred dollars were billed to the department for um, significantly more money than that. Some prominent senators have called on Secretary Austin uh, to investigate price gouging. And then we have a congressionally mandated uh, study that suggested that, that Boeing had refused to disclose pricing data on some 10,700 replacement parts, uh, constituting 97% of the refusals during uh, that uh, period between uh, 20 and 21. But Boeing says you know, that it hasn't seen the report yet and is committed to working with the department uh, and being a good steward of taxpayers' resources. More broadly, how does this impact the defense debate or is that overwrought? I've been asking several people this question about whether or not it marks an inflection point.
2: Um, I don't know if it's an, a full-blown inflection point. Um, I'd worry more about you know when you start having congressional hearings on this, or when you, you start seeing much stronger signaling coming out of the department. Um, it's been, look, you know, we talked about this a lot. You know, the the, the very large share repurchases that this the public companies have been undertaking, um, the rise of kind of new defense technology firms that you know are like, hey, we're looking at all the money that we're investing in in defense technology, um, you know, to try and come up with new innovative solutions. It's not to say the large contractors can't do the same thing, but there's kind of this perceptual mismatch that I think has been going on. I worry about it, of course. Um, and I think in an era where you are going to see when defense is kind of <clears throat> ring fenced <clears throat> from the rest of uh, federal spending, it's like, oh no, we can't touch that. It's going to invite even more attacks on, uh, you know, what are contractors doing? With the money that they earn on on the business that they're doing with the department and other parts of the federal government, um, the the you know the kind of the shareholder value mantra <clears throat> that lately has really translated into well, let's just take all the free cash flow we generate and use it to buy back stock and <clears throat> and pay dividends to shareholders. I mean. That's a bit at odds with a department that's going to see more stress going forward because of, you know, what's going to be a pretty flat budget outlook. Uh, and I think, you know, it may matter globally too. Um, you know, when you start thinking about how what's going on with, for example, the South Korean defense sector, or what might emerge out of a Japanese defense sector, given given the increases in spending that Japan is seeing. So. I think it's uh it's going to be an interesting time I think industry probably has to do more from a messaging and framing standpoint to address these kind of, of issues um it's been there and it, it you know I don't i don't know if it's an inflection point as, as much as is something that yeah i definitely keep an eye on this and pay attention to
0: um let me uh take you uh to the uh, week ahead what is it the audience ought to be paying attention to this week
2: um, look, obviously, the, the debt ceiling and, and kind of how that marches through Congress is going to be the, the main issue. I think the House view of Capital Alpha Partners is it's going to pass. It's it's not going to get gummed up or held up. You know, there may be a little bit of drama on this, but uh, at the end of the day, I, th- I think, you know, we can kind of look at this in the rearview mirror a week from now. Um, there are a couple of little things, uh, you know, Stanford Bernstein is doing their strategic Decisions conference, so there'll be uh, some of the major defense contractors speaking at that event. Um, TTM Technologies is doing an investor meeting. Uh, They're kind of a, you know, really a microelectronics company, but they do have an aerospace defense segment. That's going to happen on uh, on May 31st. There are a couple of congressional hearings in the Senate, I think on the National Guard that SASC is doing, and there's another one kind of that Senate Banking is doing on kind of a holistic look at US policy with regard to China and that competition. Um, And I'm sure there are gonna be some, I know there are gonna be pop-up think tank events uh, on on a whole array of um, uh, kind of geopolitical strategic issues
0: always a pleasure uh, having you on. Welcome back and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Vago.